WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. Exposure. I am your host Stephanie and today we have the opportunity to talk to Nama. She is a part of a group called Period and they help supply menstrual products to a variety of people. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so do you want to tell me a little bit about what your group does for those that are unaware? Yeah, so for starters we just started our group last fall in August and Period is a national organization. They're a nonprofit that was started in 2014 by a high school student who was suffering through financial insecurity with her family. So she often found herself in homeless shelters. And it was there that she realized that uh, people who menstruate who weren't able to afford menstrual hygiene products, they would resort to rags and paper bags and toilet paper and socks and really anything that's unsanitary but would soak up their blood when they needed it. Mm -hmm. And from there, she decided to start collecting menstrual products through her high school and donating them to those in need. And then now, five years later, it's grown into 300 chapters worldwide in schools, universities, and communities. And I learned about it last summer, and I found out that MSU didn't have a chapter, and I thought it would be really fun to start because no one really talks about menstrual products as being a necessity that people like you if you can't afford them what do you do there's really no other option I had volunteered at some homeless shelters or other places for people who are going through um, not necessarily homelessness but they they just need a place to stay mm-hmm. I guess that sounds like homelessness but it's called Haven House is where I've been it's, yeah. it's something special but it was there that I saw that if they would get so many donations they were often like shampoo and soap and and things that I mean that you could survive without but nothing like menstrual products which if you didn't have that you wouldn't be able to go to school you wouldn't be able to go to your job that day it really just debilitates you in a way yeah for sure and (coughs) you know being women it's something that you know we know and understand (coughs) but to think that others that don't necessarily have the means that we do that they Mm -hmm. really struggle with this and when people think of you know, things to donate that's not on the top of the list, and yeah. which is pretty sad. So how do you guys go about combating that? So we there's three components to our club. There's service, education, and advocacy. And since this is our first year, we decided to mainly focus on service. And last semester, we started donation drives with different uh, RSOs on campus that were already pretty established and were also interested in service. So the first one we went to was Lions Club, and they did a fundraiser with us. They're a food service organization. And then they did monetary donations. So from that, we were able to purchase products through Period, the national organization. And then other groups would just send us like physical products that they had and didn't need anymore. And we set up donation boxes at engagement centers around box around campus. And we just went off that. And then in November, we made... 253 period packs to donate to uh, refugees in the Islamic Center in East Lansing and one period pack had nine tampons and six pads 
And so one pack is supposed to be enough to cover an average period of five days. That's the amount of products that mm-hmm. you know, an average person would go through. So we did that last year in the, the yeah, last year, last semester. And then this semester, we sort of had the same approach by going to other service organizations, especially Alpha Phi Omega has been really helpful with collecting products for us. And ASMSU has given us funding. And this semester, we were able to make almost 900 of those period packs um, earlier this month. So we plan on donating those to the Refugee Development Center in Lansing. We've already given some to Ronald McDonald House in East Lansing, and we want to give the remaining to Flint or rural areas in Michigan. So really just targeting those places that we know need those products. And then education, we that was one of our other components, and we decided to just have a couple of meetings uh, throughout the throughout the two semesters focused on like reducing the period stigma and being uh, creating a space that's comfortable to share period experiences so we held a workshop called ask me about periods and that one was just for anyone like you could be any gender and it was a place for you to learn about other period experiences because it's not talked about and if you're going through something and you might assume that it's normal when it's not or you might assume that it's abnormal when it actually isn't um, that's what we wanted to do with that. And then we held another event that is related to education with the with Alliance, an LGBT group, mm-hmm. to talk about their period experiences because being transgender, it's not so easy to have a period if they aren't using, you know, women's bathroom. Where do they get the product if there's not a dispenser in the men's bathroom? Or to hear often that these products are called feminine hygiene products will you know, could be really confusing if they don't want to associate with that anymore. So for advocacy, we created Mission Menstruation last fall, too. And that was with um, Emily Estrada. She's an RA. And last school year, as an RA, she was like, why am I giving out condoms and not menstrual hygiene products? Um, just whenever students need them. And from there, she went to her, I guess, her bosses as an RA, and mm-hmm. then they took it to administration, and they decided to start a pilot program where you can now get menstrual products at certain centers on campus, like the Biomedical Physical Science Building, the library, the International Center. If you just go to those front desks and ask for a product, you'll get one, no questions asked. That's yeah. the whole thing. And How also, would you yeah. encourage people to do that? Because sometimes it's, you know, there is the stigma with periods like girls don't really talk about them, men don't talk about them, like no mm-hmm. one really just speaks about it. So it's kind of, you know, sometimes embarrassing to be like, hey, do you have something for like that I could use for my period, you know? Mm-hmm. So like how would you encourage people to actually seek out those resources? If your option is to get a f- product at a front desk or miss class, mm-hmm. hopefully you would choose the alternate one because that was the purpose of the program, was to avoid having students miss class. And especially as students, we don't always have porters on us, or we might forget to pack a product in our backpack, or if we're living in a dorm, we can't drive to Kroger and buy a product. So that's why we wanted to put those products out for students, and our hope is that they would choose to get the product and instead of missing class or... And I mean, even when desperate times, <laughs> definitely Absolutely. need something. 
and besides those uh, locations that I had mentioned, there's also in Wells Hall, the dispensers now don't require quarters to get a product. So that's also a part of the pilot program. So they can just turn the knob and they'll get mm-hmm. a product without putting in a quarter. So we're testing out and switching the dispensers to that. And then there's also available products at the front desks in South Neighborhood. So Holden, Case, Wonders, and Wilson, they all have products just sitting in a basket at the front desk. So you can grab it. You don't have to ask the person sitting there for a product. Um, So those are all our ways to pilot it. Our hope is by this upcoming fall that they'll be completely available in all residence halls. Um, We're working on that. That would be really cool. Again, for all of our listeners, you're listening to WDVM East Lansing. This is Exposure, and today we are talking to NAMA from Period, a group that helps students have more access to menstrual products. So you've talked about all of the ways that you have now set up this process so people can access the needed products. How did that happen? Because that sounds like a lot of work considering you guys are in your first year. Are you talking specifically about mission menstruation or just giving to homeless shelters? All of the above, because I feel like it's definitely a process to get all of that going. I think since Period is an established nonprofit, we were given so many tools and materials from them, and we had other successful chapters to look at. Um, yeah, this wasn't a lot of the things we did weren't just coming off of the top of our mind. They were just inspired by other groups or like the workshop was something created by period as a national organization. The idea of doing nine tampons and six pads was also a part of their model. And advocacy being one of their three components is trying to get those available products in schools because they do see that it's directly correlated to more attendance. So really just going off what they suggest, I think what period has created is really, really good and could be applied to all schools and all um, places and we also got so much help from those RSOs that I mentioned like Lions Club, APO, Planned Parenthood Generation Action just by asking if they could help us out by collecting products or monetary donations or attending our packing party they were always so helpful and I don't know what we would have done without those groups because we needed a place to and first introduce our group and then, you know, get the help too. Yeah. And can you talk about your role specifically, how you got involved and what you do? So I'm the president of the club and I guess the founder too. I first heard about period last May, almost a year ago, because my friend who goes to Wayne State, she was in their period chapter. Mm-hmm. And it was then that I was just I was really struck by when she told me, Oh, we just pack menstrual products every week and give them to people in need. And I was thinking, why has no one ever done that before? Right. Um, But I thought about it the whole summer, and I think I had the means and I had the time and and most especially the interest to do something like this here at MSU. That was enough to make me start it, and I was fortunate enough to have four friends that wanted to do it with me too. Yeah. What are your guys' meetings look like, and how many members do you currently have? Our meetings are pretty infrequent. (laughs) Um... It was more just instead of having like biweekly meetings or monthly meetings, we wanted to just do something if we knew we would have a worthy event. We didn't want people to just come and feel like they were wasting their time. Um, rather, we only had the packing party this semester that 
we that event with the LGBT group, uh, trivia night, we always had to make sure there was a purpose. And I don't think we had enough material to have events that often. The people, or we also had a tabling event in Wells Hall to promote mission menstruations. We had one of our members come there, someone who wasn't a part of eBoard, which was pretty cool to have non-eboard members uh, also be interested in what we're doing. Sure. That has honestly been a difficulty just because like, we still feel like we're new and we're still trying to tell people about it. And even though they might say that they're interested, they it's hard to tell my or have them also have the time for it. Yeah, I mean, being a college student, it is difficult to add, you know, yeah. other things to your schedule. And there's so many other cool groups to be a part of, activities. Yeah, so, well, you guys are yeah. definitely making a difference and having an impact not only on the Lansing community, it sounds like, but, you know, Michigan State in general with all of the new dispensaries. Um, so there is definitely a stigma with periods. You did touch on the education portion, but what is one of the ways that you guys work to combat it, and what are some of the stereotypes that you hope to get rid of? For example, men are very don't want to talk about periods or like hear about them or, you know, when girls are on their period, you hear the, oh, why are you grumpy today? Are you craving something or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is. I can talk about the men thing because in the beginning of the school year, we went to a couple club fairs mm -hmm. and we would have our table out and it was pretty obvious what our group did or does. And anytime a man would pass not any time but you know too many times that like a man would pass and he would glance at our table and he'd be with a couple of friends they would just laugh and be like oh I would definitely never join that or you know why do we need something like that so it was from you know very early on that we knew that it would be hard to get men to you know be interested let alone join um but going through like two semesters now we've had a couple men men at our events and once they attend an event and actually learn about what we're doing, not just looking at one flyer, then, you know, if they care enough, then, you know, they'll also be equally interested and see why this group is important because, you know, understanding what a period is and how, like, you know, being on your period, how that could affect more than just your health is really important because... I don't know what else I want. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like, like having a period, a it's not just, you know, it's this thing that happens, you know, once a month. But, like, it's yeah. when you don't have access to the appropriate products, it influences a lot more than just your health. Like it's Exactly. That's what, I mean, I've, I've mentioned education more mm -hmm. than a couple of times, but that was really the main reason that Mission Menstruation was created, because there shouldn't be a divide between how men and women are learning simply because women weren't able to get those products or there shouldn't be a divide in how much men and or how like how many or how much men and women are able to spend because women have to spend more on products and men don't mm -hmm. um it's just all of that feels so unfair and for men to discount periods and not respect it or see it as a serious like you know, not a serious issue necessarily, but just take it seriously and understand yeah. that it's normal. It, you know, it doesn't help it in any way. And to not have men want to talk about it, that that just adds to it too, where it just, 
it makes women feel like they can't talk about it and then if they can't talk about it then they might not know what a healthy period looks like they might not be able to you know ask for if they're at work or if they're somewhere and they feel like they need a break because they're on their period if they're suffering through cramps or something they might be uncomfortable to do that because no one would understand um and i think the whole thing where with men not being comfortable or men you know just laughing at it it's because they're not comfortable and because at a young age when women first learn about periods it's only women learning about it and not men i mean i remember when i was in fifth grade and men girls and boys were separated and how we were taught about reproductive health and we learned about periods and the boys didn't and i think that's the moment where the stigma arises um so it really needs to start there and it's hard now where you know the guys are pretty much grown up to sort of change their attitudes towards forced periods yeah absolutely so how can the community help support your guys's group as well as menstrual health in general i think to continue to donate to us we have a venmo um I mentioned earlier the nine tampons and six pads. Mm-hmm. So if you donate $2, that's enough to cover the one period pack. Besides monetary or physical donations, um, talk about mission menstruation because it is, it's a pilot program right now, which means even though it's, you know, the administration is aware of it and they're helping um, facilitate it, they're not funding it. And we've had to get the funding period. Mm-hmm along with um, the two other girls working on it. So getting the funding has been a lot of work, and we want the university to start to pay for these products because we think they should. And if they don't feel like there's a demand here, then they won't. And right now we don't – right now if we feel like there's a lack of demand, it's simply because people aren't aware of it. Yeah. Um, We've seen the most – use in the resident halls in south neighborhood because they're so obviously there they're sitting on the front desks and they'll be emptied within a couple days and then they have to refill them so often yeah they'll be you know if you go to (coughs) the university with those you know statistics and stuff you know hopefully we can work to change it um but if people are interested in helping your group or donating where can they contact you um we really love using our instagram it's at period dot msu Uh, we post there the most if we ever are having a donation drive or having an event or talking about mission menstruation that would be our first resource if you are more interested in you know something different then you can email us at period.msu at gmail.com those are kind of our two ways of contacting us and you guys are probably picking up more with you know next fall coming up yeah, and okay. hopefully getting more people involved because the work you do really does impact you know not just the university but the community surrounding so mm-hmm. it's really great that you guys are doing this and I appreciate it thank you yes thank you for coming in is there anything else that you'd like to tell our audience about your guys's group or ways they can help um I think that going off what I was saying that this group is open for ev- everyone and not just for women um, that's why we held that event with the LGBT group. Um, mm-hmm. We never use the word feminine hygiene products, and we rarely use the word woman or girl, honestly, in any of our meetings. Because this, even though, you know, mainly women experience periods, it's period, like, 
in itself doesn't just affect your men, it could affect, you know, your husband or your your son, um, a brother or something. Yeah, and attribution um, is needed for everyone. Yeah. Because it affects, yeah. you know, half of the population or more. Mm-hmm. It's not helping anyone for men to not know about you. Yeah, well, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Darren. Darren, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Darren. I'm a third year PhD candidate in the Department of Integrative Biology, and I'm also a member of the Ecology, Evolutionary Biology, and Behavior Program. Nice. And what is your research involved with? So I, I look at foraging behavior in bumblebees. Want to tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. So bumblebees are really interesting because they live in groups called a nest or a hive, and they have to collectively make sure that they're collecting a lot of food so that they can raise their young all together. In order to do this, they have to evolve some strategy to best allocate themselves to the resources in the environment, the resources for bees being flowers, specifically. So I'm interested in how bumblebees are able to find the best flowers in the environment so they can collect a lot of food to feed their babies. How are you able to actually determine whether or not bees are flying to a particular species of flower? And what have you found so far tends to be the main factor that keeps bees coming to a particular flower? I actually do my experiments in a really big flight cage, we call it. So we have a mesh set up and we're able to mow all the grass and set up our own artificial feeders. So I don't use real flowers. I use fake flowers, basically. And in that way, I'm able to kind of control what resources are available in the environment um, so that I can look more directly at the bees flying to them. Within this environment, do you have multiple types of flowers? No, I just have one um, feeder that I use and for certain experiments, and occasionally I'll set up a second feeder that looks exactly the same as the first one in a different area. Do these feeders look like flowers? Not very much, no. (laughs) They are circular, and they have a lot of sugar water in them, which mimics the nectar of flowers, because what I'm really interested in isn't the qualities of the flower and how the bees respond to that. I'm interested in how they respond to the quality of the nectar inside the flower. So I kind of make all my fake flowers look the same, and then I can just control the quality of the food inside the flower, basically. How are you able to actually replicate the nectar that's found in the flower? And do you control for that in the sense that do you have different samples with different concentrations of the nectar-like fluid? And how does this help you with your research? Yeah, so we just make solutions of sugar water. So there's a lot of things in nectar that we're not able to mimic exactly. But the main thing the bees are looking for is just sugar. So what we do is we just take hot water and dump in a bunch of sugar. And we measure out how much sugar we're putting in so we can get different concentrations. And 
in that way we can control kind of the quality of the sugar water because all the bees really care about from the nectar for the most part is the sugar and so that's what we're giving them um yeah and i forgot the rest of your question <laughs> for clarification purposes i'm gathering that you're feeding these bees in a kind of mesh area and that you're giving them the same thing over and over what are you hoping to learn from your experiment what is the objective of your experiment i'm hoping to figure out what strategy the bees use to find the best resources in the environment um, and this is because we know that lots of other kinds of bees and other social insects like ants have different communication systems set up so that they can kind of tell each other where the food is in the environment. So honeybees do this thing called a waggle dance where they are able to, it's exactly what it sounds like, where they wiggle their bodies in the direction of the best flowers that are out there and they can communicate like the exact location of resources. And ants do this cool thing, or some of them do, where they'll lay odor trails in the environment that other ants can follow to find the best food sources. So they communicate in these ways. Bumblebees, which I work with, don't do any of those things. They don't lay odors and they don't wiggle in the nest to tell each other where the food is, but they still need to kind of work together to find the best resources in the environment. So that's what I'm interested in doing is figuring out what kind of social cues they might use in the nest kind of help each other find the best resources. Is there a particular reason why your research group is studying bumblebees? Kind of just because nobody's answered this question with them yet. Honeybees have been studied really, really extensively for a lot of different things. And my advisor has done a lot of work with honeybees, including with the waggle dance I was just talking about. Um, but nobody's really looked at how bumblebees or if they communicate socially in the nest like this, or what exactly they do. And so that's why I'm working with them specifically. Are they endangered? No. So my species of bumblebee is not endangered. It's actually reared commercially. So there are companies that raise them to sell to farmers mostly, to like put in their fields to help pollinate crops and things like that. So I can just buy colonies of bumblebees for like, I don't even know how much, not that much money um, for my experiments. There are some bumblebees that are endangered. In total, there's 250 different species of bumblebee. So some of them are not doing so well right about now. Some of them are doing really well. My species in the wild is actually doing really well. It's expanding in its range. You mentioned how the bees that you're studying are used in a lot of different commercial applications. Are the endangered ones also important for these commercial applications, or are they more just for nature? So the there's only been a few species of bumblebee that are raised commercially. So there's my species, and I think there's one or two others, mostly out in the west coast of the United States. Um, and then there's a species in England, in Europe that is raised commercially, but the vast majority of them are not commercially reared. And so they're just out in the wild pollinating things. Why have there not been efforts to repopulate the endangered species of bees with the same techniques that they're using to 
breed the commercialized bees? That's a great question. Um, I think the problem comes down to if you want to raise bumblebees um, commercially, you have to kind of replicate the nest environment that they would form in the wild. So part of the problem would be that different species of bumblebee have different requirements of like space that they use and the temperature and humidity they require. And in order to figure those things out, first of all, you have to study them a lot. So the species that I use that I can buy commercially is also just really common throughout the eastern United States. So it's really easy to study. A lot of the endangered ones, you wouldn't really even be able to find them to study them well enough. Um, and then just the effort of actually replicating that environment kind of artificially would be really difficult to fine tune. So I think that's why people haven't cracked that exactly yet. It's really hard to kind of domesticate different kinds of bee. How do you model the behavior of these bees? I've done all my modeling work in a uh, programming language called Python. And essentially, it's something that we call an agent-based model, where I have a simulated group of bees that I can send out to forage or to search for food on a grid of just numbers. And different values of number in the grid would correspond to different kind of reward values. So a bigger number would be a better flower, essentially, and a lower number would be a lower value. And what I try to manipulate in this model is how much communication there is inside the nest that the agents or bees return to. How are you able to clarify that in real life? Are you marking every single bee and seeing if it goes to the feeding source? Or are you looking at how these bees interact with each other in the air or something? What I do in the real life experiments is I have one colony of bees that I set up in the big flight cage I talked about and I can train them to visit the artificial flower, the fake flower. Um, training them is really fun. You just basically put them on a pipette and you bring them over to the feeder and they learn really easily where the feeder is. Then what I do is I, once they're coming and going from that regular feeder I set up and I train them to, I introduce food directly into the nest that's better in quality than the food I train them to. So it's kind of mimicking a one bee bringing back something better that she found that the other bees don't know about. And then I'm able to watch if the bee's behavior changes at that first artificial feeder. And I also set up a second feeder in a different location. And I see if they kind of like go to search around for a new feeder once they know there's something better out in the environment. How well have your computer models and what you've observed in nature so far, how well do they agree? They actually line up really well, which was very good. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I've essentially found that the bees in the real life experiments do respond to the food that I'm putting into the nest by kind of rejecting the other food that I train them to and searching for something new which would be what we'd expect if they're actually kind of responding to what other bees are doing. 
inside the nest. And when I've simulated that in the model, um, I see a similar effect where they're able to kind of collectively bring in more resources when they're using kind of social information in the nest. What fuels your passion for this? What inspired you to be studying this? My passion really comes down to kind of a childhood passion I had. It kind of sounds a little cliche to say that, like, oh, I've loved animals ever since I was a kid. Um, but I have. That's the truth. And I always knew that I wanted to grow up to study animals in some way. And I never really cared what animal it was. And as I got to college and started looking around at different animal species that were out there, I got really interested in the social insects, like bees especially, because they have really unique social systems, like they live in these groups with a queen and a bunch of workers, and that's really interesting. And also because they're just so important for the environment, um, and they kind of have this charismatic presence in like our culture that made me really interested in them. And I was fortunate to be able to work in a lab that studies bumblebees, which are less studied than honeybees, which I also think is really cool to kind of break new ground with a different species. While you were working with these bees, have you ever been stung by any of them? I have been stung by many bees in my days. <laughs> um, my lab uses both bumblebees and honeybees, and I've been stung plenty of times by both. Um, usually a handful of times every summer, since our experiments always take place over the summer, because that's when the bees are flying around. Um, I've been stung on the lip, inside the ear, um, all over my arms and legs. It just kind of comes with, comes with the job. So it's safe to say that you really love bees. <laughs> I must to keep coming back every time. <laughs> Do you feel a difference with a sting from a honeybee versus a bumblebee? I definitely do, and sometimes even between individual bees, like two different bumblebees might feel different when they sting you. It might have to do with where they sting you as well. Um, from my observations, honeybees tend to have the, the sharper pain right away, and it stays like really sharp, intense pain, but it doesn't last as long, whereas the bumblebees, it's not as sharp initially, but it kind of like stays longer, like this dull pain. Yeah, both are not very fun. All right, this is giving me the chills. Uh, how about we ask you something nicer? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to something that you had mentioned before. You had said that you guys study the bees in the summer because obviously they can't be flying around in like negative 20 degrees winter over here in Michigan. I'm wondering what do they actually do in the winter when they're hibernating or something like that? Are they hiding? And what do you do in the winter when you can't be playing with your bees? Yeah, there's not a whole lot I can do in minus 20 degree weather either. Um, so what the bees do kind of depends on the species of bee. Honeybees will kind of collect themselves in their hive in like a ball so they can all keep warm together. And they'll try to survive over the winter using the honey that they've made. So they're called honeybees because they make honey. And the honey they make is meant to keep them alive throughout the winter. Bumblebees um, don't do that at all they actually all just die off at the end of the summer. So in like the fall, the bumblebee colony will start raising up the babies to be new queens and males. 
and they'll fly out of the nest to start like reproducing um, or to start mating, sorry. And then once the queens are mated, they go and dig a little hole in the ground and they wait there over the winter. They hibernate until the spring when they come out and they can start their own nests. But all those old workers that were in that first colony all just die off. So what's the lifespan of these bumblebees? The individual bees can live for maybe four or five weeks, a few weeks. The colony as a whole just lasts one, one year, like one summer. I never realized that. Why can't everyone just hibernate and dig into the ground too? Why do they just have to fly away and freeze to death? I think it's because the, the individuals have such short lifespans that it wouldn't be worth it to try to survive over the winter. Because then by the time you came out, you'd be really old anyway. Um, whereas the honeybees that do survive over the winter can have new babies coming out while they're huddled up in the winter. Does the same thing happen with bees that live in a warmer climate? With bumblebees that live in a warmer climate? Or... Yeah, do they still die off in, in a few weeks, even if the cold doesn't get to them? Yeah, most bumblebee species are temperate, so they live in environments where there's a winter that they can't survive. Uh, there are a handful, I think a handful, of tropical bumblebees, and they actually just live throughout the year, kind of like honeybees do. But most bumblebees live in places where we have four seasons, and they cannot survive over the winter, yeah. You've gained all of these different practical skills in your tenure of working with these bees, what are your plans now for whenever you finish with your doctoral degree? Do you plan on staying in the bee industry or maybe choosing a more academic route? My current plan um, is the same as when I was a kid, actually, which is to be a professor someday. So I'd like to stay in kind of the academic path rather than go off into like pollinator agricultural industry. Um, as part of that, I'd like to keep working with bees, partially because I like them and now I have experience with them, but I also wouldn't mind branching off into other species as well. Insects have a negative stigma. For example, even I'm afraid of insects. I'm wondering how can we break that stigma? What recommendations do you have for children who might be interested in insects? I think that the negative stigma around insects is, at least I've been noticing, kind of going away as people have been realizing how important they are to the environment. So not just bees, but lots of other insects are really important. In order to actually kind of overcome a fear of insects or being creeped out or grossed out by them, um, I think it's good to try to ease yourself into handling them or at least looking at pictures of them to start, then maybe looking for them just outside in your backyard or something, and then finally trying to like actually pick one up and handle it safely to see that it's just a tiny living thing that really poses no threat. Isn't there also an MSU bug house on campus? Oh yes, there is, and they don't only have insects, they also have um, arachnids like spiders and scorpions and other kinds of creepy crawly things. Um, so it's a great place to go, and I know that they have school nights there where schools will bring the kids in to look at all the different insects and spiders and stuff, and you can actually handle them there very safely with people who are experts at handling them. 
to kind of help break through that fear um, of even looking at them. That's wonderful. Honestly, if they had done that with me when I was in elementary or something, maybe I wouldn't be so afraid of insects right now. And hopefully not only myself, but other people can get over their fear and negative stigma of insects. That's really great information about the MSU Bug House. Thank you for so much for sharing that, as well as a lot about your research. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.